0: So Nick, I'm really glad we had the OBG Project to refer to when we made this HS episode.
1: Yeah. you know, And actually, I would even go back to say with cholestasis and with so many of our other episodes, the OBG Project is like a great place to start to get the quick summary. And then they even have additional reading for us or for our listeners to dive into the topic further.
0: Absolutely. Um, And so if you also are part of their subscription service, OBG First, you can also create your own bookshelf so that you can have your articles to go back to. They'll also send you emails and things like that about the latest journal articles and findings so that you're always up to date on the most recent literature.
1: If you're a chief resident, you can actually get OBG First for absolutely free for one whole year. Head on over to our website, kreogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. There's a link where you can get signed up for OBG First.
0: All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is
1: Creags Over Coffee.
0: coffee. So today we have with us two very special guests to talk to us about a very important topic, placenta accreta spectrum.
1: So first up, we have Dr. Scott Schenker, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He's an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School as well. He's a co-founder and director of the New England Center for Placental Disorders, which is an international referral center for patients with placenta accretus spectrum. And Dr. Schenker recently co-chaired the SMFM Placenta Accretus Spectrum Ultrasound Task Force and was a lead author on the recent SMFM Placenta Accretus spectrum ultrasound guidelines. So welcome, Dr. Shanker. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Also with us, we have Dr. Brett Einerson, who is an assistant professor and maternal fetal medicine physician in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He is the director of the Utah Placenta Accreta Program, one of the busiest accreta referral centers in the country. In and 2020 and 2021, he was the director of the SMFM Placenta Accreta Scientific Forum. He currently serves as one of the founding members of the Board of the Pan-American Society for Placenta Accreta Spectrum, also known as PAS Squared, which is a multi-center, multinational accreta research and education organization. So welcome, Dr. Einerson.
1: It's good to be here. All right, so to set the stage, we're just going to define a couple of learning objectives for our listeners today. Um, first, we'll define exactly what is the placenta accreta spectrum. Next, we're going to learn how to diagnose placenta accreta spectrum, and we'll talk about if we can just do that with imaging, how accurate that is, et cetera. Um, And then finally, we'll talk about the management of placenta accreta spectrum with respect to timing and delivery and modes of surgery. And hopefully, we'll get a little bit into Dr. Shanker's and Dr. Einerson's particular expertise in this subject and have a little bit more fun even than our usual podcasts. So Dr. Einerson, why don't we start with you? What exactly is placenta accreta?
2: That is a great question. Placenta accretus spectrum is a group of disorders that are all characterized by placentas that are abnormally attached and really tenaciously adherent to the uterus. Normally the placenta and uterus are attached at a layer called the decidua, but in placenta accretus spectrum, that layer is absent. We think that uterine scarring, usually from C sections, is the cause of that absent decidua. Other features of placenta accretus spectrum, other than the adherence of the placenta, include that there's destruction and dehiscence of the uterus by an ever growing placenta. And then you get this insidious transformation of the pelvic vessels into what I like to call a superhighway of hypervascularity. The abnormal attachment and adherence of the placenta to the uterus causes major problems at the time of delivery. So instead of a clean separation of the placenta from the uterus, after the delivery of the baby, the placenta is invested deeply in the uterine wall. And when you try to remove it or rip it off, which I don't recommend, there's massive
1: bleeding. We take away anything from the podcast today. We will not rip off the placenta. (laughs)
3: I I also think it's important to to note the words that Dr. Einerson used there. He didn't use the word invasive. And, And so although we describe the placenta as invading into the wall, it's truly a misnomer. I mean, it doesn't, it's not cancer, right? It doesn't have an abnormal biology that we're aware of. It doesn't have an abnormal cell cycle. And its ability to cross normal basement membranes is because of exactly what Brett said, is because of, we think, the dehiscence, right? And that supports the, what I would say, used to be ethereal, now is probably pretty much accepted as fact that cesarean scar pregnancies are the early precursors to placenta accreta spectrum. And as the pregnancy implants into cesarean scar niche, that's the earliest evidence that we see, and Brett and I see it pretty regularly, of, um, that scar starting to dehist. And as you, if a patient were to continue that pregnancy, you will see that, that, uh, scar get thinner and thinner and the placenta just bulge through, um, and beyond the myometrium. trip.
0: Yeah. Dr. Schenker, that brings us, I think, really well into our next question, which is, you know, during SMFM, there was certainly some debate and discussion about appropriate terminology. Um, because I, I think I've heard, quite a few ways of talking about um, placenta accretas. I've heard like just abnormal placentation. I've heard PAS. I've heard increta, percreta, accreta, all of these things and some other terminology as well. What really is favored and what should we be using to describe this abnormality? And then also, you know, talk to us a little bit about surgical versus like pathological diagnosis.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, in my relatively short time dealing with this over the last maybe eight nine years, I've seen that transformation. You know, where people described accreta as morbidly adherent placenta, they described abnormally invasive placenta, abnormal placentation. I would say that now, globally, it's accepted um, to refer to these as placenta accreta spectrum. It's just as just as Dr. Einerson pointed out, it is a spectrum, and it starts that early off in the first trimester and can. And and beyond. And I describe that to patients. And I describe it that that there's a kind of continuum of this disease, and there's a a relatively shallow yet deep adherence, and there's a much more severe corollary to that. The terminology accreta, increta, percreta, which still kind of is showered in the textbooks, although I suspect will be. In the next few editions, probably be gone um, is really falling out of favor um, because there weren't generally agreed upon terms or definitions for those. We've all seen these kind of these illustrations of a creta kind of attaching to the myometrium, in creta. Some say within fifty percent, some say up to the serosa, and then per creta beyond. But it, When you talk to pathologists, none of them would really give you the same definition for those at all. In the last few years, both the clinical diagnosis of accreta has been um, suggested uh, by a group um, representing FIGO. And so they've created this really nice uh, FIGO classification of PAS, which I think most of us now use um, interoperatively. And so for placentas that Probably historically, we would, we would call just creta. Those are fecal class one. For the more increta type, um, those are fecal class two. And the percrito abnormal, serosa, kind of you have those those vessels that Brett was describing, big bulging, those are fecal class three. There's a couple subsets of those. Probably the details of that aren't all that important. In parallel, a group of pathologists got together and said, well, let's come up with a pathologic criteria for this. And they used, I think very smartly the, in disclosure, I was part of that committee, but we they used the FIGO classification and made the pathologic correlate. You should start seeing in the relative new future as people adopt these new terminologies, stage one, two, three, akin to cancer, if you will, cancer staging, um, opposed to a crita, incrita, and procrita.
1: I know we talked a little bit so far about sort of the debate that also is there with dehiscence versus placental invasion. But it's kind of funny to hear you talk about, again, like, you know, staging like a cancer and then this hypervascularity. And then, you know, some of us have also certainly heard of or maybe even seen things that are like, you know, invasion or quote unquote invasion into the bladder or to surrounding structures. Um, so w- how do we reconcile some of this with that dehiscence hypothesis when we know that there seems to be some sort of, at least on the surface, seems like invasion?
2: But that's the great question too. The One of the things that I would just uh, say, in addition to what Scott said, is that I I love how the descriptions have really gone away from just three classes that everything's got to fit into, into something that's much more descriptive. So whether we're talking about anticipated severity from imaging, or we're talking about what I see at surgery, or we're talking about what the pathologist sees when it comes to them, it's much, much more descriptive. And so the new terminology has a heavy focus on the gross description of what the disease looks like. And it was really that, gross description of what the disease looked like when I opened up patients that led to some of the work that we've done in trying to reframe what placenta accreta is as not a invasion disorder, but a uterine dehiscence disorder. So for a long time, just to give the listener a little bit of background, I mean, for a long time, we focused on this placenta as being the key player in placenta accreta spectrum. We imagine that it's an invading cancer, penetrating deep into the uterus or even through into other organs. And their argument or the framework around that is really that the trophoblast, which is the earliest cell type of the placenta is really the problem. But not all of us who have been looking at placenta creta for a while now really see the disease that way. So based on observations, based on descriptions that we get from operative report or histopathology reports. Based on our observations intraoperatively about what PAS looks like and how it behaves, those of us in the dehiscence camp, if you want to put it that way, have come to hypothesize that it's really a primarily a disorder of the uterus, not a disorder of an abnormal trophoblast. Under the, like, I guess, dehiscence theory, you've got this early embryo that attaches abnormally and uh, the trophoblasts invade like they always do normally, superficially, but they're invading in an area that's not normal. So as a result, that normal decidual layer that allows for the placenta to come off easily is never formed. This is the abnormal adherence that we've been talking about as part of the definition and staging. But the key difference in the dehiscence theory is that subsequent to that adherence, the disease progresses from mild to severe, mostly determined by how much extent the uterus opens up, how much the scar dehisses, not by the characteristics of the trophoblasts being more or less invasive or malignant. To some degree, the theories work together a little bit. So to some degree, they're not totally contra- co- contradictory. But I think it's important that we get the distinction right. And I think it's important, let me say, I don't think I have this all figured out. We're still trying to figure it out. But if you think about how you'd go about preventing, diagnosing, and treating accreta, those approaches to prevention, to diagnosis, and to treatment are very, very different if you're thinking about accreta as though it's a trophoblast problem compared to if you're thinking about it as a uterine scar problem. So that's why I think it's important that we make the distinction, not to prove I'm right or wrong or to overthrow the traditional way of thinking, but to actually get our next steps right. Let's prevent this better. Let's diagnose this better. Let's treat this better.
0: Yeah. And I think building off of that, let's kind of take a step towards, you know, diagnosis. So what are some of the major risk factors for somebody to develop placenta accreta?
3: So the biggest risk factor is... Uh, kind of akin to what Brett was just talking about, is the presence of a cesarean, a prior cesarean section, and a concurrent placenta previa. And so one um, of Brett and our dear friends and mentors, Bob Siller had this fabulous paper that is highly, highly quoted and cited that really described the, um, the association between previa and prior, prior section and risk of accreta. And for the listener, um, and what I tell my, my residents and my fellows just to learn this mantra, is that if you have uh, just a placenta previa, no prior cesarean delivery or no prior scar in that area, the risk of accreta is about 3%. Now, that I will say that 3% probably does not support our dehiscence theory. Maybe that lower uterine segment just isn't quite normal, but uh, we certainly see it. If they have one prior cesarean delivery, that risk goes to about 10 to 11 percent. Two prior sterion deliveries, it's about 40 percent. Three plus, it's about 60 percent. Okay. And so the mantra that I teach them, 310, 40, 60, it holds true. It's held true in many other studies. This is a big MFMU study. Um, and that's the biggest uh, the biggest and, and the most classic risk factor. Then there's a list of risk factors that are less understood, probably less strong. Uh, the one that's gaining the most press recently, or the most, the, the most uh, kind of cred in the in the literature, if you will, is reproductive uh, assisted reproductive technology. Both Brett and I have come out with papers not that long ago, looking at the role of IVF. Uh, I think actually it was IVF. Kind of a catch-all ivF ART, and the development of pas and in, in in multiple cohorts this is also panned out compared to um, age match controls nobody totally understands why I think it supports Brett, Brett's comment about this really being a decidulopathy if you'll like allow me to develop that term right that the that if you have a, if someone has infertility maybe they're they're the, the endometrial environment is not is not primed for, for a pregnancy. They get exogenous estrogen, hormones. That does something to the endometrium. I'm not a reproductive endocrinologist It's just my theory. Again, I don't have it all either. Uh, but that is a clear risk factor. There's even a difference between fresh and frozen cycles. Um, prior accreta is a risk factor as well. And so if you have a woman or a patient who had an accreta you know, maybe a focal accreta, it was cut out, over something was happening in that area, her risk of developing an accreta in a subsequent pregnancy, kind of all comers is about 25%. DNC people have looked at pretty extensively, it's very common, as we know, I think that literature is is much more gray, I don't know if Brett's thoughts are, but you know, lots of women have DNCs, not a lot of women have accreta, right? Um, certainly if you see a woman who's had multiple sharp curatage, there probably was some disruption to the decidua in those procedures, but a suction DNC at six, seven weeks, I have a hard time believing that that's a, an independent risk factor for PAS. And no studies have really shown that as well. Brett, I don't know if you would add to that list or not.
2: One of the things that's interesting about that is I've started using the concept of prior uterine sp- surgery a lot more than individual procedures because I do think that there's the potential to have endometrial damage with any uterine procedure whether it be a submucosal fibroid removal or a uterine septum takedown and one of my biases here is that some of the effect of IVF is probably because women have had more procedures that could have an effect on their uterus so it may not it may be that they have a decidulopathy which I like that term I'll start using it now Um, but it also might be too that they had a had a procedure that they didn't think of as potentially causing a scar that caused a scar. The other ones
3: that I know Brett and I have talked about in the past together is prior embolization. And so we don't think that the embolization that's used routinely now for postpartum hemorrhage, gel foam, you know, kind of this delayed absorbable material is an independent risk factor. But, you know, patients who have had, you know, whether coiling for AVMs or something like that, uh, more permanent embolization. Also, ablation um, is on that list. And so hopefully we're not ablating uteruses that and performing endometrial ablation in women who have plan on having pregnancies in the future. But if you think about what that's doing, that's completely denuding the endometrium. And now you've created this ultimate environment for kind of global accreta. Uh, I've certainly seen it. It's they're they're bad, they're they're difficult to diagnose actually, because they're not the classic, you know, in the classic areas. And then the other one i've never seen this personally but pelvic radiation is kind of on that classic list as well
2: i think it's important for learners to really really focus. and you made this point scott to really focus in on those first two i mean the combination of previa and prior cesarean is so synergistic as a risk factor that it just literally floods out the odds ratios are mad on this like previa alone the odds ratio is like 30 to 50. and then you add a cesarean on there we're talking about omega risk factors. So, you know, whether we figure out the twins are a risk factor, independent risk factor, or some part of IVF is a a risk factor, what's important for people who are going to see patients in clinic is that if a person's got that potentially deadly combination of prior cesarean plus previa, that's, that's where the warning bells are going off in your head.
3: That needs to be in the back of your mind, right? And so, you know, kind of avoiding that unnecessary cesarean I think for in our world, we that really hits home, right? We're seeing these women who are coming with after having their their, you know, quote unquote failed failed induction that maybe didn't quite meet criteria, and now they come in with their second pregnancy with a big gnarly accreta, and she says, "Well, maybe I didn't even need that section to begin with." This all kind of comes together when you think about how does the decision making for the uh, initial cesarean. Come into play and what are the downstream effects and when i you know my my residents laugh at me but when i talk about a cesarean for failure to progress or failed induction i bring up a Krita next pregnancy every single time and they laugh they're, they're, they're like you're the only one that does this but it, i think it's important i think it's important i mean there's some you know i have some bias here but those decisions are important
1: yeah i think that segues actually really well into what i wanted to touch about on next which is you guys mentioned you know the the sort of central risk factors of previa plus prior cesarean. And in the age of ultrasounds, no somebody gets their 18 week scan and you have that history. And then the diagnosis of a previa, you're right. Like your alarm bells are going up. I guess what is the role of imaging for antenatal diagnosis, particularly like given the various pretest probability that you'd have based on Dr. Silver's study that you guys cited, um how good are various modes of imaging is mri worthwhile or part of your routine management so imaging for
2: placenta creta spectrum is excellent in research studies and actually pretty bad in the real world and i don't mean to say that to to be disparaging of non-referral centers i don't mean that in the least but what do i mean by this so when you look at the published literature ultrasound and MRI perform brilliantly with sensitivities near 90%, specificities greater than 94%, and both imaging modalities look like they do a great job in those research studies. But the statistic that continues to shock me, and it's been reproduced in a couple of different studies from a couple of different countries, is the finding that only 50% of patients who have accreted know about it before their delivery. And so in other words the real world sensitivity of imaging cuz almost every pregnant woman in the United States is going to get an ultrasound is nowhere near 85 to 95%. It's much much lower than that. And we know that's true because we continue to see a rash of undiagnosed cases. So why why the discordance? I I, I think the biggest issues are are first a lack of awareness of risk factors which is why I really harp on Raising your alarm bells whenever you get a combination of pri- prior cesarean plus previa. And then, two, I think it's on us as the researchers in this field to create less confusing and conflicting descriptions of how to make this diagnosis. There are 100 different signs in the literature <laughs> between ultrasound and MRI. What is important to look for? It's overwhelming. This is why I think it's so important for us to do work like. Scott has done to formalize those definitions for ultrasound findings. You mentioned at the top of the podcast his publication about the SMFM statement on ultrasound imaging. It's critically important that we get the terminology right. It's also critically important that we focus on on those risk factors. But ultimately, and I tell my patients this, ultimately I will not make the final diagnosis in a lot of my patients if not most of my patients until we open them up you know if a patient has four prior cesareans and a previa i almost don't care what the ultrasound says i am coming to that case prepared for creta surgery and if we're surprised by the lack of a when we get in excellent relying on risk factors standardizing definitions these are critical critical steps for us to turn that dial up on that 50 percent Diagnosis rate—it's just critically important that we do it. What do you think, Scott?
3: I completely agree. Um, I also want to highlight that this is an ultrasound diagnosis. That, and 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 I say that again. There's some bias here. I'm a sinologist, like I don't read MRI, right? But I think when you when we put together that that task force, there were people who were international experts in placenta MRI in the room. And they also said this is an ultrasound diagnosis. Um, and they said there there are there is a role for MR probably posterior previous. You don't have an acoustic window with the bladder, the rectum's in the way. Um, and so there are some some opportunity to utilize other modalities. Although I think Brett's shown us that those modal MRI uh, can can lead you astray and lead you astray in a way that you may be. Uh, falsely reassuring patients that they don't have acreta, and in my world, that's the scariest because you're sending them back to the community to a facility that may not have, they may not have the the resources and the and the and the um, and really the blood bank. I think that that's probably the biggest one, but uh, to t- take care for that patient. And so uh, I completely agree with you, Brett. But I also want if there if there are, if there are MFM fellows listening to this, which I hope they are, mine will be. Overcalling this is not a failure. Undercalling it is a failure. And I truly do believe that. because you know, you can undercall, you know, short long bones, and that baby's probably gonna deliver the community and that's okay. But if you undercall a big gnarly accreta, that's that's a, that's potentially a bad outcome. You're, you're, you're gonna have some sheer numbers of being wrong. And when I first started doing this, I, I really beat myself up and, and called that a failure. I just don't think that's a failure anymore. I think that you're, you're, it's going to happen. Um, and I tell patients that I said there's just going to be some times that we're going to overcall this, and you know, we've kept you safe, and that's okay. And uh, and I think patients understand that.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shanker and Dr. Einerson, for coming onto the podcast with us today and giving us so much information about placenta accreta spectrum. And next time, we'll be talking a little bit more about management of placenta accreta. So when should these patients deliver, tips about cesarean hysterectomy, and also a brief discussion about conservative management.
1: Pleasure. Pleasure being here. Thank (laughs) you so much. I had a blast. Excellent. Well, we can't wait to see you guys back for part two next week. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Criag's Over Coffee.
0: you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: Find us online on Twitter at creags Over Coffee 1, on Facebook or Instagram at Criags Over Coffee, or you can head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee. Support the show, we'll send you some swag.
0: You can also find show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.criagsovercoffee.com.
1: If you have a question for us or for our guests today on the podcast, um, feel free to email us, kreogsovercoffee at gmail.com.